0: Good evening, everybody. Our Bible reading of this evening is from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 to 32. Mark 15, reading starts from verse 16 to 32. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him. "Him, came of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and his feet on him. Falling on their knees, they fell from him to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they laid him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rupas, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of his love. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they corresponded him. Dividing up his crosses, they cursed the to see what it would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notes of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two rovers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by fell insults like him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who going to destroy the temple? and hear it in three days. Come down from the cross and serve yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law moved him among themselves. He served others, they say, but he can't serve himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who prospered with him also his insults on him. This is the words of the Lord. Well, good evening everyone.
1: If you have your Bibles, it will be helpful to keep them open at that text that was read. Thank you very much for this opportunity to... Uh, bring God's word tonight. I'm um, grateful for the invitation. And, and, and Simon, thank you for promoting my book. There's actually a, a typographical error on the, on the front page, on the, the cover. It says, Mark, by the book, BY, it should be D U Y. Maybe on that positive note, we should close in prayer. <laughs> Let's go let's in a moment of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to gather your people in your name as we approach the Easter weekend. And Lord, my prayer tonight is very simple, that just as the Scriptures magnify your name, so your name would be magnified in this sermon tonight and in our lives. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. You know, in a 2010 six-volume compendium of all known inscriptions in Israel for a thousand-year period from about the 4th century BC, you might be surprised to read entry number 15 of the Jerusalem inscriptions. Quote, Titulus, or inscription, On the cross of Jesus, in three languages, Aramaic, Latin and Greek, about 30 AD, and this is what the inscription reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The entry then states, there is no reason to doubt the tradition that this inscription, Jesus, King of the Jews, was affixed on Jesus' cross. My point in quoting this is not just that this volume affirms the details of the sign on Jesus' cross, but that this highly respected secular reference work, it's a very prestigious but it's a secular reference book, it's not written by, by Christians, it's not a religious book at all, publication. This highly respected secular reference takes it as an absolute fact of history that Jesus existed and was crucified as King of the Jews on a Roman cross. Jesus, King of the Jews. That is our focus in this text tonight. We see this reality depicted in our text that was read. where Jesus' identity revolves around this title, King of the Jews, there are at least six references And significantly found mostly on the lips of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Romans 15 verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the King of the Jews? Verse 9, Pilate to the Jews, do you want me to release to you the King of the Jews? Verse 12, Pilate asked, what shall I do then with the one you call?" king of the Jews. Verse 18, And the Roman soldiers began to call out to him, Hail, king of the Jews. Verse 26, The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. The religious leaders, verse 32, cried out, Let this Messiah, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross. That we may see and believe. One commentator makes an interesting observation. He says that you will notice that it is the Romans who call Jesus King of the Jews, but the Jews who call Jesus King of Israel. The Jews would never have called Jesus King of the Jews. So you can see that this motif, this identity is very prominent in our text. Of course, there's irony present. Those that called him king of the Jews spoke unintended truth. They didn't really believe he was king of the Jews, but ironically, in fact, in truth, Jesus was. But what is very striking about Jesus in this particular text is that there's no earthly glory for this king. You know, there's this uh, program now on Netflix called The Crown, And uh, you get a bit of a glimpse of what goes on behind the scenes. But even today, you know, royalty typically, traditionally, historically, get garners great respect in public. But unlike the Queen, Jesus here experiences no reverence or respect. It's very striking, there is uniform derision from all who are present. You find this only in Mark's Gospel. The crowd shout, crucify and crucify him. The Roman soldiers mock him, hail, King of the Jews. The passers by, we are told, verse 29, hurl insults at him as he hung on the cross. The chief priests, verse 31, mocked Jesus among themselves. And even those crucified within verse 32 also, quote, heaped insults on Jesus complete and total derision. This should not surprise us in the historical context. Crucifixion was not only a painful but also a very shameful way to die. Josephus, the contemporary Jewish historian, described crucifixion as quote-unquote the most miserable of all deaths. The victim was severely flogged, usually stripped naked, nailed to a cross, exposed publicly for all to see, usually at a crossroads. No burial was allowed in a family tomb. The victim died a shameful criminal death. No wonder that this crucified king was given no respect. Of course, we know, as you read through Mark's gospel, that this was the pattern of Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, if you read in John's gospel at one point, the, the the Jews accuse him of being a Samaritan, which, believe me, in that context, was was not a compliment. Oh, we see you casting out demons, but you do that by the power of Beelzebub. You're an instrument of Satan. He was opposed consistently by the religious elite, despite. The authority and power glimpsed in his miracles. Jesus performed some amazing miracles. I think, for example, in John chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, and what is the response of the religious leaders? They go away and plot out to kill him. That was Jesus' experience. Some commentators have likened Jesus' earthly experience to that of King David in the Old Testament. You remember that story. Under God's direction, Samuel, the judge, anoints David as king of Israel. But it's only much later that he is inaugurated as king. And in the interim, he experiences all kinds of opposition. He's hounded and vilified by his predecessor, King Saul, and his supporters. And that's sort of the pattern we see in Jesus' life. One who's been anointed king, but is opposed and vilified by those around him. This connection to King David is reinforced in the context by allusions to two Psalms Psalms 22, which is well known My Lord, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 69. What is significant about these two psalms is that they're both Davidic psalms, and in this particular psalms they detail King David's physical suffering at the hands of others. Clearly, then, sufferings that prefigure the sufferings of David's greatest son, King Jesus. You can look, for example, at verse twenty-three that talks about the reference to wine, cross-reference Psalm sixty-nine, verse twenty-nine, and Psalm 18, and seven the casting of lots for Jesus' garments and the mockery that he experiences on the cross. So here is this one greater than David experiencing what David himself experienced 1,000 years earlier. But significantly, both of these psalms end on a note of hope. Suffering and death do not have the last word. And again, no surprise in Mark's Gospel You need to remember that Jesus on at least three occasions in Mark's Gospel, end of chapter 8, end of chapter 9, end of chapter 10, predicted that he would rise again from the dead. We sometimes think when we hear Jesus cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry of despair. Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, thy will be done. As if Jesus never knew that there would be victory, life after death. But Jesus knew. All these things go to the the, the depth and the intensity of his suffering. But Jesus knew that there would be a good ending. That suffering and death would not have the last word. And that Jesus' resurrection would be followed by his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven as King. And in due course it would culminate with Jesus' return to earth to establish a glorious kingdom and then this King of Israel would receive the glory due to his name. So Mark chapter 15 then very clearly emphasises Jesus' identity as a King but a different kind of King. A King who is vilified, a King who suffers greatly. What is significant though is that as you read through the rest of the New Testament you find that Jesus is not referred to as King of the Jews by the Apostles, but rather as Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. It has the same connotations as King, one who rules, one who has authority. And so scholars believe that that kind of title is used because perhaps it would have more currency, it would be more universally understood than the concept of Jesus as King. So I want to draw out tonight just some very basic lessons from this text about Jesus the King, Jesus' lordship. What does it mean today for us? that Jesus is a King, that Jesus is the King of Israel. The first lesson is this, is that Jesus demands our obedience, sorry you're going to have to just blank out the background music. Jesus demands our obedience. I use that word demands because he's a King. Jesus' first recorded message in Mark's Gospel is a call to repentance and faith. The first message he preaches. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is drawn near. Put your trust in me and turn from your sin. You see, to be saved means to enter God's kingdom. But because it is a righteous kingdom, the kingdom in which God rules, we must turn from our sin if we are to enter that kingdom. Again, my friends, this surely can be no surprise. If you cast your mind back to the Old Testament story, you will know that God also established a kingdom in Israel. And that kingdom was also intended to be a righteous kingdom. That's why God gave the law through Moses. Moses. If you obey this law, you will live long in the land. Under the new covenant, the same law is now written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit, facilitating obedience. And think about the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. All authority. Teaching them to obey. Obedience is not optional. My friends, just to be clear, our obedience does not save us. We are saved by faith alone, praise God. But as the reformer said, the faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by works of obedience. One New Testament scholar has put it this way, works are not part of our justification being made right with God, but they are part of our salvation. That is why James can say in James 2.17 that uh, faith without works is dead. It's dead. It cannot save you. And the writer to the Hebrews says, without holiness, chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness no one will see the Lord. My friends, let us never forget that God is holy, 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 and so is his kingdom one day. And if we are to enter that kingdom, we are to lead lives that reflect His character. And so there's more to the Christian life than simply going to heaven when I die. Get out of hell, card. Here's my decision for Jesus. Let me dust it off, water it out, dust it off, blow off the dust, and here we go, Peter, let me in. Well, there are people that think like that. Now, it's interesting. If you had to ask the average unbeliever, what does it mean to be a Christian? What would they say to you? got to be a good person. Of course, they don't understand the way it works pretty, but there's a reason they say that, because, my friends, the Bible is full of calling us to be good. People that obey their King. So let me ask you tonight, are you walking in obedience to Jesus today? I'm not asking you if you at some point made some decision for Jesus. Is Jesus not only your Saviour but Lord? You know, in some, in, in, if, you, if you know something about church history there have been those who said you, know, you can receive Jesus as Saviour but not Lord. That's kind of an add-on later. I hope you see tonight, my friends, that when Jesus died on the cross he died as a king the King of the Jews, the one whom we must obey. Jesus is Saviour and Lord. You cannot have the one without the other. Jesus expects our obedience. Secondly, Jesus expects our loyalty. Jesus expects our loyalty. Like Jesus during his earthly ministry, his followers can expect trouble and tribulation in the present until Jesus returns. It was true for Jesus and it will be true for us. Jesus warned his disciples, Luke twenty-one, seventeen: all men will hate you because of me. All men will hate you because of me simply by virtue of the fact that you call yourself a Christian people without justification will hate you both heaven and hardship are promised to the believer you know there are those today who peddle this health and wealth gospel And if you don't experience that, health, wealth and happiness, if you don't experience that, the problem is you just don't have enough faith. One of the courses I've just completed teaching at the Bible Institute is the book of Acts. And uh, Pentecost, there's this outpouring of the Spirit of God. And there's this massive conversion that takes place. Thousands pour into the church. And in verse chapter 242 and following, you see the way the Spirit works and they're meeting together, praising God, finding favour with the people, breaking bread together and sharing everything they have. And then you get to chapter 3 and Peter and John are off to the temple because at that particular juncture there weren't local churches, no St. Barnabas church. <laughs> And there's this lame man who's been there since birth, lying there at the gate. and, and he, he looks at Peter and John, hoping for some alms. Hoping for a hand. What does Peter say to him? and gold have I none, said he. You see, there was no health and wealth. <laughs> and gold have I none, said he, but such as I have given unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So much better. So much better. My friends, heaven and hardship. Heaven and hardship. The Apostle Paul says, We must go. We. Paul includes himself. Paul includes us. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And Paul spoke from experience. In the context, Paul had just been stoned and left for dead. Paul says to Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, 2 Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you read the book of Revelation, those seven churches, three problems persecution, compromise, complacency. There's a connection. Those who were being persecuted were those who were living godly lives. Those who were complacent and compromising weren't being persecuted. They're taken, borne down the flag. Pull down the flag. I want heaven but I don't want hardship. Loyalty to Jesus means confessing that Jesus is Lord. He calls the shots. In that ancient world, that confession meant possible death because Caesar was Lord. But no Christian who acknowledged that Jesus was Lord was willing to say that. Today it is becoming increasingly uncomfortable in many quarters to insist that Jesus is Lord. I hardly need to tell you that we live in a post-Christian culture which is abandoning at an alarming rate a Judeo-Christian worldview which is now being dubbed as oppressive. Even the bizarre is now touted as being acceptable. So we are told that you can choose a gender that is different to your biological sex. In fact, you can choose to be gender fluid so that today I want to be a man and tomorrow I want to be a woman. In some countries like Canada, parents can be imprisoned if they do not support their teenager. Notice what I say, their teenager's desire to seek treatment to transition to another gender. That's the law of the land. And there's one father who refused to support his daughter and he's now in his nine prison. Sixteen year old daughter. And he said, he said, you know, I'm going to do everything possible to support my daughter. The last thing I want is in ten years' time when she comes to me and says, Dad, why didn't you stop me? from doing what I did. And I want to be able to say to her, I did everything humanly possible to stop you from doing that. My friends, this is the bizarre world in which we live, coming to a city near you. As atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche noted, if God is dead, all things are possible. We now live in a so-called cancel culture where you will be shamed and shut down on social media if you seek to honour Jesus as Lord on social issues. If you challenge these hostile forces, even with wisdom and grace, you are labelled by the social media mobs as transphobic, bigoted or an oppressor who is not yet woke. I mean, this is all new vocabulary to me. Your problem is, is, you're not woke. You see, we are now being defined by our group identity. Identity politics. Male or female, black or white, that identifies you. My friends, this is totally contrary to the scriptures which define all of us as fallen mankind made in the image of God. God all of us worthy of dignity, but all of us in need of salvation. It's not that anything now goes, says one writer, but that almost nothing goes unless you abide by this standard of justice. There's tolerance of their position, but not if you oppose them. Another writer says we are living through a cultural shift from the postmodern relativism of "do not judge," remember that was always people. "Do not judge, do not judge." You're being very judgmental. Now we're transitioning to becoming, what one writer calls, one of the most judgmental societies in history. Well, my friends, how then do we remain loyal to Jesus in today's world without isolating ourselves? Because we can withdraw. But what did Jesus say? He wants us to be salt and the light. Don't withdraw, don't hide your light. But don't compromise. First of all, don't fear. Don't fear. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is the King, he's not just Lord of your life and my life, He's Lord of all. Amen? Amen. These cultural changes, my friends, are not outside the control of God. Just because they are so opposed to God and anti-God and anti-Christian does not mean that God has lost control. In fact, the Apostle Paul interestingly insists that these very things we are experiencing come from the very hand of God as judgment. God says, if you will not acknowledge me and live under my rule, I will give you over to your sin. Romans 1.28, just as they, speaking about mankind, gone astray, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. That's the world we live in. Not worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So, listen to this God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what ought not to be done. Are we not seeing that today? People will reap in themselves what they say. Second of all, so don't fear. Second of all, don't fail. Even when loyalty may prove to be costly, to echo the words of Peter and the Apostles in Acts, we must obey God rather than men. And because Jesus is law, we can trust him with the consequences of our obedience. So next chapter 12, Herod kills James. Herod the grip kills James. Pleases the Jews, so he arrests Peter and wants to put him to death. What happens? God sends in an angel, no problem. Four sets of four soldiers guarding him. (laughs) Chapter begins with Herod flexing his muscles. Chapter ends with God flexing his muscles and Herod dead. Don't mess with me, don't mess with my people, says Jesus.
0: And yet, my friends,
1: here's the thing. We know that God could have saved James, but he didn't. James dies. <laughs> but Peter is saved. That's the world we live in. Heaven and hardship. Heaven and hardship. Remember what Jesus said? Any man would come off me, what must he do? Take up his cross. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Death to self, not my will, but I will be done. Thirdly, don't forget, don't forget. Jesus will return one day in power and glory. We need to live as those who eagerly expect that day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is indeed Lord and King every knee. The kind of mocking worship that we see from the Roman soldiers in chapter 15 will be no more. Christ will be seen for who he really is, the King of God's kingdom and worthy of our obedience and loyalty. My friends, this should give us courage and boldness to persevere in our obedience and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. As much as we look around and see these things, we should be looking forward, looking up and looking forward knowing that God has a plan, that God is in control, that he's working out his good purposes in the church. So this Easter, my friends, let us both worship the King and witness. This is not just about self-preservation. This is about worship and witness. Let us testify to this one who loved us so much that he was willing to lay down his life on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sins. That God could so love us who were so unlovable that he sent his only son to die that we might not perish but have eternal life. My friends, that's a, that's a message of good news, a message of hope in a, in a context where there's so much darkness and so much misery and so much hopelessness. Let us witness and worship. I want to conclude with some words from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, a psalm that speaks of the coronation of the Son of God, King Jesus. And it says this, verse 11 Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. See, that's the language of lordship. Verse 12 Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. See. um, Put your trust in him. Kiss the Son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment listen to this, blessed blessed are all who take refuge in him that's really what he says about isn't it, it's taking refuge refuge in Christ I didn't this is on in my notes but I, I just I was reading something today and it's got quite a lovely picture where, you know, if you've got kids growing up, you know what it's like. Sometimes they're chasing, the older one's chasing a younger one around and maybe you're not quite bullying, but you know. And what, what, is, what, is, what does the younger kid do? Runs to mama dad and hides behind or dad. Not so. Why? For shelter and protection. <laughs> I know my sibling can't touch me. And this writer said, that's really a picture of the gospel, isn't it? that we hide behind Christ, don't we? We're hidden in Christ. And so we're safe. We've taken refuge in Him. And so we're blessed. We eagerly, we eagerly await His second coming. And my friends, these events that we're witnessing, these changes, these cultural shifts that are happening so alarmingly fast should cause us to long for that day and to live in life for that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time tonight. and uh, Thank you, Lord, for the good news of the Gospel that just brings light and love and life into our hearts and lives in the midst of all the darkness. Father, I want you to just pause and pray for those right now who are being persecuted for their faith who is suffering physical persecution, whose lives, whose families are being threatened because they have bowed the knee to you and dare to confess that Jesus is Lord. Oh Lord, draw near to them. Give them courage, strength. Protect, provide, undertake. Help them to worship and witness you. And Lord, I pray for ourselves today as Easter comes. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Fill us with your truth, with your life that we truly worship you this Easter as those who've been redeemed, set free, those who live with this sure and certain hope because of Christ. And help us, we pray, as opportunities present themselves, even where it's difficult, even when we anticipate opposition to witness to Christ the King. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen.